0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. We are in week three or so of the new normal. And Eric, obviously as much as the whole situation sucks on countless levels, at least people like you and me have a better situation than a lot of other people i mean we've got some income we've got a podcast to keep ourselves occupied and obviously we're, we're able to buy a couple of weeks worth of food and and store it safely in our fridge and freezers. Am am I right? (laughs) It's almost like you know something about my home life uh, (laughs) with the way you're asking that question,
2: Kieran. Uh, Yes, as you know, uh, but the people listening don't. Uh, And let me first say, what I'm about to detail is an extreme first world problem, especially now. Uh, But the Raskin family had our biggest mini crisis yet of the COVID-19 lockdown era when we woke up Tuesday morning and our fridge and freezer had died. Uh, I didn't know the appliance was dead. I hoped it might just need a repair, so we paid two repairmen to come over and breathe in my house and touch things, which we immediately wiped down, Uh, and they quickly determined that it was, in fact, dead, not repairable. So then my wife and I had to head out into the world to Lowe's, and it's tough to find a fridge that fits in the particular space set up for it in our kitchen, so there was literally one nice fridge we could be sure would fit, and it would be ready for delivery in two weeks. So uh, that's not so good, eating canned goods and cereal without milk for two weeks. Uh, so we ultimately bought a cheapie that could be delivered the next day with plans after the pandemic is over, knock wood that the no, pandemic will end, uh, to uh, to patiently shop for the fridge of our dreams and uh, make this one our backup basement fridge, something we don't currently have. Uh, so uh, the, the new temporary fridge was delivered with two more strangers breathing all over our house. Uh, A fair amount of food was lost. Uh, An extra mask and glove-wearing trip to the grocery store was required. And here we are. Somewhat costly, somewhat of a pain in the ass, but probably no more than a one or a two on a scale of one to ten for age of coronavirus problems. Uh, But hey, at least only one of the two co-hosts of this podcast had freezer issues this week, right?
1: Well, you'd think. (laughs) You'd think. I seem to have, like, the opposite, like, whatever... You know, essence disappeared from your freezer, went into like the overall kind of global freezer essence and was downloaded into mine because I woke up in the middle of the night a couple of nights ago with my freezer freaking out. It's gone in the opposite direction. I believe that's um, called osmosis. Yeah, something. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and um, distant osmosis. Right. And um, yeah, so I actually had to like get up at three o'clock. One morning and try to figure out why the hell my freezer was making all that noise. And I seem to have temporarily fixed it, okay. which is good. But there you go. But you know what? Look, if the pandemic doesn't end, then basically at some point we're going to get to the stage where we're killing and eating our neighbors and we can just take their fridges. <laughs> I
2: suppose so. Uh, and, uh, you know, at, and that will be a very important time to have a working fridge freezer so that you can, right. uh, you know, sa- save save some of the meat. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Or, you know, leave some of it for appeasement to the wolves, which will be encroaching <laughs> on our towns and cities.
2: Yeah, so. I guess uh, eventually the fridge or freezer that you steal from your neighbor, the wolves will eventually have control of all the fridges
1: and freezers, and <laughs> we'll be
2: in them. And <laughs> wow, this <laughs> is taking a dark turn.
1: <laughs> exactly. We've only just started. So, but so anyway, so after I quasi fixed my freezer, it was three thirty or so, and I couldn't get back to sleep. So I said, "Screw it! I'll just I'll just go back and watch." Some TV before I go back to bed, which clumsily segues us to our weekly catch-up. So I did some TV watching, and, um, and I dare say you've been doing some. So what have you been doing to try to uh, keep yourself entertained and distracted during lockdown week three?
2: Uh, so my I'm still not binging any t- new TV shows. Uh, I-, I assume I'll get around to that, but uh, but once again, it was another week of going heavy on the movies uh, for me. So uh, I- I'll give you three this week: uh, two with the family and one on my own. All of them movies I'd seen before. Uh, On my own, uh, now that it's available on one of the pay cable channels, I watched for the second time a Fred Raskin joint, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I'm biased about the movie. He he was ripped off, man. So have you seen
1: it now? Oh, yes, I've seen it. Yeah, I love ah, it. Ah,
2: okay, because, yeah, because I think when whenever it came out in the theater and we first uh, discussed it either online or offline, I can't recall, you told me you were pretty into the whole Manson family things. So you exactly. were looking forward to it, but you hadn't seen it yet. So my opinion doesn't matter. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty biased on this. Uh, uh, let me get your, your quick review. It sounds like you liked it.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought the acting was excellent. The editing, of course. <laughs> right? was super, but I thought uh, the, the twist on it was... Uh, on the whole Manson thing was great. Uh, I loved the way they ended it. Uh, I, I really, some of the acting, some of those individual scenes, everybody talks about that one scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and that young girl actor. Yes. There were yep. a couple of real standouts. Uh, just a series of really, really splendid scenes, and and it was great. And it was finally, at the very last scene, and I'm not. this isn't a spoiler, really, for anybody who hasn't seen it, I sat back and I go, oh, now it's a Tarantino movie. <laughs> Yes.
2: Yeah, that's not really a spoiler. I won't elaborate on that. But yes, that's a that is an appropriate reaction to have. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's I was thinking as I was watching much of it uh, for the second time that, you know, as Tarantino movies go, my kids could probably watch most of this and then yeah. and then not. So, <laughs> um, but speaking of things my kids could watch, uh, the other two movies I watched this week, uh, not too much to say about them. These are movies that everyone has seen, but my kids were seeing them for the first time. Uh, Sixteen Candles, which. Uh, there's a lot of racially inappropriate stuff as it pertains to Long Duck Dong, uh, stuff that is very much of its time. And I've decided Molly Ringwald was not a very good actress, uh, but otherwise it holds up a uh, good movie. Uh, and the other movie, this one has a boxing tie in the movie that played a role in costing Lennox Lewis his heavyweight title, ah, yes. Ocean's Eleven, the closest we would come to a fight between Lennox and Vladimir Klitschko. Yep. Totally fun. Uh, not not an all-time classic, uh, but just a good, fun movie that everyone in the family enjoyed. Yep. So h- how about you? Uh, first off, uh, how far have you gotten in uh, Schitt's Creek, or, or Poop's Creek, as we call it in my PG-rated <laughs> household, um, And uh, uh, and are you watching anything else?
1: Yep, still on season one. Um, okay. I'm still still thoroughly enjoying it. Um, did take a break for a couple of things. Uh, movie wise, rewatch the personal favorite, uh, "What We Do in the Shadows," um, mm-hmm. not I the don't... TV series that that's on FX, I think, at the moment. The original movie is It stars and is directed by Taika Waititi, who okay. was most recently famous for uh, Jojo Rabbit. Right, um, and it is an absolutely Brilliant mockumentary about a subject that everybody's done: three vampires who share a house in Wellington, New Zealand, and <laughs> um, and, and it's about them going through their daily lives and trying to lure people back to their apartment, uh, and their clashes with the werewolves in town. And um, it's 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 brilliant. Really, uh, I thoroughly thoroughly recommend it. It's it's utterly bizarre. Um, and always laugh out loud funny so i fully enjoyed that and okay. watch that again so uh, i'll pers-
3: I'll,
2: I'll have to say i don't Maybe I've heard of it, but I, if that's about as far as I could go with that, I, I knew nothing about that movie. So, I uh,
1: strongly okay. recommend it. Okay. It is, yeah, it's laugh-out-loud funny as well as being really well observed. Okay. Um, some of the New Zealand accents may be a little strong at times, but um, the, that's why God invented subtitles if necessary. <laughs> Plus, if um, I can if I can put up with your accent, I'm sure I can well, put up with theirs, right? Exactly. Exactly. If you can listen with envy to my accent week after week, <laughs> is what you meant to say. Uh, and then after that, and then the reason there was a brief interruption and shit creek as i had to do it mate i succumbed to the madness i had to watch tiger king Ah, um wow
2: (laughs) now i see i've i've not seen it i've obviously heard and seen everyone talking about it but uh the little i knew about it it didn't sound like something
1: i really want to watch but am i wrong is it something i really want to watch that depends so i It was one of those shows, I totally get why it was so popular, and it was one of those shows, it's only seven episodes, and it was one of those where I couldn't wait to watch the next episode. Okay. In the sense that, you know, especially the first four of the seven, it's just like one layer of batshit lunacy on top of the other, and you think, oh, I can't get any crazier than this, and then it does. Um, and so the first four episodes are really some kind of tragic comedy. And then the final three episodes are mostly tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few friends who started to watch it and just couldn't watch it. They're, they're you know, so some of the criticisms I've seen that are valid are, you know, it's very much laughing at other people's misery. And it's very much the Netflix watching part of America mocking the, um, dentally challenged part of America. (laughs) Okay. So there's certainly that up until the final episode, there wasn't much focused in my mind from where I'm coming from on the tigers and the other animals. Uh, It was all like about these crazy people. And it wasn't about the fact that they're keeping them all in these cages, but they kind of deal with that in the final one. Um, The main characters, the main three characters are all to my mind, completely unlikable. They're all horrible. And he just wanted bad Mm. things to happen to all of them in my mind. Um, The ancillary characters I thought were pretty cool by and large. It is... A commentary on just the awfulness of, of humanity in some ways, and also just the extreme, how compelling just car crash TV can be. Um, I'm not sure. You could either really love it or just be like, nope. Right.
2: Yeah. I, so the most that I've watched is the, like, the trailer that they show on, on Netflix right. for it, and I did not come away from that feeling like I wanted to see it. Um, but with that said, maybe maybe it's worth watching the first episode and determining if this is something yeah. I'm, I'm hooked yeah. into or not.
1: My, my suspicion is you'll either go, holy crap, that was, this is incredible. Where is this going? Or, yeah, it'll be click. Right. Uh, so when I totally get why it's, it, it's done so well. It's very clear, or it appears clear that at the very beginning, the, the filmmaker wanted to do a good documentary a straightforward documentary about how these weird people are somehow able to own all these big cats and other wildlife in these exploitative private zoos in Oklahoma and Florida and, and, and South Carolina and so forth. And then just the sheer craziness of the people involved kind of like carried them along on this whole other's tale. Uh, and you almost feel like the filmmakers are just these, uh, uh, innocent helpless characters being dragged along the rapids of these people's <laughs> lives um, and they must have thought well i have no idea what's going to happen next uh, and amazingly all this weird stuff is happening and they're all m- keeping themselves completely exposed and open to the tv cameras that are rolling while all this incredible stuff is happening right. so yeah uh it's something and boy <laughs> i tell you it would have been popular anyway but they must just not be believing their luck in the fact that it basically came online pretty much on day one of the lockdown or thereabouts. So Yeah, I,
2: I see it ranking at number one on the on the algorithm of top 10 most watched things on, uh, on Netflix and so forth. So, uh, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, I should quickly mention, just as long as we're on Netflix, did you know that there's a Netflix dramatic series about Carlos Monzon? Were you aware of no. this? Yeah, apparently, I, I think it's pretty new. Um so I was thinking, we it's like ten episodes of telling his story, not not documentary wow. again, like dramatic, yeah. So I was thinking that we could consider trying to binge that at the same pace and discuss it on the pod for several weeks. That's but then idea. I was thinking, then I was thinking we should probably check with the Showtime bosses before giving okay. tons of free press to Netflix. So <laughs> that's that's a maybe until we've talked to uh, the higher ups.
1: Indeed, indeed. All right, until then, let's move on. Um, We have a bunch of news items from the World of Boxing to report on this week, and notwithstanding the fact that there is no actual boxing taking place. Um, And in the spirit of the times in which we find ourselves, all these news items basically suck. (laughs) Um, Just beware that when we get to the news segment, it's just awful it's, you know what it's
2: kind of like once upon a time in hollywood in in a sense if you if you're not into the awfulness you you can probably turn off the podcast. we're saving it all for the end <laughs> right, so that you can turn right. off the podcast uh, when you get when we get to the news
1: yeah yeah um and yet look really uh before that we've got something else here and and how many of us right now how many of us how many times have we each of us closed our eyes and thought if only we could go back to the before time. Like, life was great a month ago. I remember those times when it was okay to, like, shake someone's hand or hang out in a bar or watch sports or even cough without fearing you then had to quarantine yourself for 14 days. Oh, those were the days, also known as February. Um Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back in time a little bit here. Uh, For the next several weeks, at least, we are going to be revisiting fights from the past, looking back at their highlights and lowlights, talking with guests who were involved with the fights or who were there. And for the next three weeks, given that we will not be having a big Cinco de Mayo fight uh, this year, we will be focusing on fight cards that took place on that weekend in years past. And we begin with one of the very biggest such fights, May 5th. 2007 at the mgm grand garden arena in las vegas nevada floyd mayweather jr against oscar de la Hoya. yeah and this is a fight where
2: setting the stage is key where the build-up to the fight is perhaps more significant and more memorable than the fight itself Uh, the fight was going to be huge no matter what Uh, oscar was the biggest star in boxing he had been for the better part of about 10 years at that point he could sell on pay-per-view against any opponent He'd won titles in five different divisions and maybe he was past his prime at age 34, but he wasn't far past it and he'd looked spectacular in his previous fight one year earlier when he dominated and stopped Ricardo Mayorga to move his record to 38 and 4 with 30 KOs. Mayweather meanwhile was number 1 on pretty much everybody's pound for pound list, a perfect 37 and 0 with 24 knockouts. Titles in four divisions, including claiming the lineal welterweight title against Carlos Baldemir in his previous fight. He'd been a star in boxing for a while, but he wasn't quite a superstar. His pay-per-view numbers were stuck right around where Oscars were 10 or 12 years earlier. So this was Floyd's dream fight. And like I said, it was going to be enormous no matter what, kicking off with an 11-city, nine-day press tour. But it became bigger than anyone could have imagined. Thanks to 24/7, a new yeah. docu-series from HBO that would follow both fighters and go inside their camps for four episodes, and we'll be talking about it in more depth with some of our guests. But it was a game changer. Uh, Mayweather played the bad guy and played up his new nickname, Money Mayweather, and he would steal the show and go on to become the perfect 24/7 star, playing to the camera like nobody else in boxing quite could. Uh, on the show, we saw oscar sparring with shane mosley we saw oscar's trainer freddie roach mocking roger mayweather on the phone asking him could you speak english please (laughs) we saw everybody riding around on segways before paul blart made them uncool uh i remember saying at the time that it seemed it was not humanly possible to watch this 24 7 series and then not order the fight (laughs) re-watching it this week it obviously doesn't seem as groundbreaking anymore, but it still holds up in terms of entertainment, and it changed the way major fights have been marketed ever since. And that, perhaps more than anything else, is the legacy of Mayweather versus De La Jolla.
3: On May 23rd, I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby Antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself.
2: You will not beat us for the end. I have visions of hell. Make <laughs> it stop!
1: Make it shut up! You're not gonna survive this. Evil, the final season, streaming May 23rd, only on Paramount Plus. Yeah, the rewatching it, the sort of the quality, originality, and the sheer crackle of this 24 seven really hit home, home to me. You know, over the last few years of its existence, as good as it continued to be. You know, 24-7 really struggled at times. You know, there were only so many ways to try and make money Pacquiao seem interesting. Um, Canelo Alvarez, when he became the number one guy, he was entirely uninterested in granting access. He would do absolutely as little as he could get away with. And so that's why in the final couple of years we ended up with things like Freddie Roach and Marvin Simodio going on a carriage ride through Central Park and <laughs> Chepo Renoso giving us a tour of his vegetable garden. because <laughs> It was like, give us something here. But... You know, like you said, the level of access that was granted by both camps here w- was phenomenal. And and the enthusiasm in particular with which Mayweather uh, granted that access. And, and, of course, not only did he then open the doors to himself, he did so to the whole car crash that was the Mayweather family. <laughs> and no wonder that that all caught people's attention the, the way it did. Um, you know, and like you said, yes, look, this fight would have been a big deal either way and Oscar was by far the biggest star in boxing i always used to joke he could have sold out arenas and he could have just walked into the middle of a ring and started reading the yellow pages and and, and people would have would have watched it um and yeah mayweather was becoming a real anti hero wasn't he like he was initially lauded for his brilliance as he annexed the 130 pound world title he soon began to sort of face some opprobrium with some of his comments. You know, it's also I, for, for me, it sort of began with his comment that, that an HBO contract was slave wages. Right. Um, uh, you know, even though there's was some context to that, like I think he said, compared to what they're offering Nassim Ahmed. But still, um, it sort of went on from there. Um, but he was, you know, sort of, I think, gaining wider recognition for his brilliance, particularly after the Arturo Gadi demolition. Um even though, like you said, he just wasn't catching light as as a star. But there was legitimate intrigue in how the contest would pan out, especially if it was going to be taking place at 154 pounds. As you alluded to, in the event, the fight itself did not match the hype, although it actually wasn't bad. Um, It was skillful. Right. It was also effectively a fight of two halves. Um, there was a first half in which De was at least competitive, uh, working behind a good jab many rounds, attempting to work Mayweather to the ropes, and then flurry, and doing one of those things that very few opponents did against Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, he tried to go for the head, but Oscar was doing a good job of landing on the shoulders, the arms, the body, anywhere when he did do those flurries, which many times opponents were told don't just try to go for the head you'll never hit the head go for the body and very few actually managed to do that um and in contrast Mayweather would be looking to ride out those flurries and then land those sharp short counters over the top single punches time after time after time um the lead right hand the right hand behind the jab the the wonderful left hook um uh sort of keeping De La Hoya off but even as it appeared to be at least somewhat close The body language of the two boxes throughout suggested there could only be ultimately one outcome. You know, De La Hoya, even when he was winning or at least being competitive in rounds, was constantly tense. Mm -hmm. He was clearly thinking extremely hard about what he was doing. And Mayweather, in contrast, as we have since become so accustomed to seeing him, was smooth and personified. I mean, he was relaxed. He was effortless. Never showed any great concern. Uh, barely ever seemed to be breathing heavily. And and over the second half of the fight, that relaxation worked to Mayweather's advantage as De La Hoya stopped deploying that jab and Mayweather started to pull away. And and what would become his signature style, he kind of squeezed the tension and excitement out of the contest. Rounds nine and especially 10 and 11 were particularly one-sided and uneventful. The crowd starting to boo as Floyd had Oscar just where he wanted him. Um, Sitting ringside that night, at the final bell, if I recall correctly, I scored the contest 117-111 for Mayweather. Um, Rewatching it for this podcast, I made it 116-112, which is how one judge saw it too. Another had it I thought a too close 115-113 for Floyd. And a third actually scored it 115-113 for De La Hoya, um, which I still don't see after watching whatever it is 13 years later. Perhaps something of a moral victory in a sense for Oscar De La Hoya in that at least he managed to take one scorecard off of Floyd. But otherwise, he ended up very much second best. Yeah. So I I was not ringside that night. I watched from my
2: living room. And I recall it being a little like De La Hoya's previous biggest fight against Felix Trinidad in that Mm. it it wasn't boring, but it was too much of a pure boxing match to possibly live up to the hype. Uh, Max Kellerman said before it began, the nightmare scenario for boxing people is a dull fight and a bad decision. The dream scenario, of course, is a great and dramatic fight. And it really landed right in between. Um, There was a bad scorecard, uh, but not a bad decision. And it wasn't dull, but it wasn't quite dramatic either. It was a Mayweather-style fight. And it was not the best fight he was ever in, but... It was better and closer than most of them. Um, Credit to Floyd for going extra heel by stealing a page from Uncle Roger's book and entering in the sombrero and the Mexican flag colors to agitate the Oscar fans. Um, I found it interesting that he was introduced in the ring as Pretty Boy Floyd Mayweather. The money nickname was not official yet, apparently. Um, We'll do some categories in a moment, breaking down some key elements of the fight itself. But uh, in terms of the, the wide angle stuff... This time around, I scored it 117-111 for Mayweather. Um, I think on fight night, I had it 115-113, maybe Mm. 116-112. I was definitely closer watching it live than I was on this rewatch. I thought watching and scoring carefully this week, you could give anywhere from two to five rounds to Oscar. Mm. Tommy Kazmarek's scorecard was awful. He was the one who had it 115-113 for Oscar. He had to have been letting the roar of the crowd influence him because no way were there seven rounds in which Oscar was scoring better or dictating the action. Um, The first seven rounds were close. Oscar had a good seventh, uh, and and so I had it 4-3 Floyd at that point on my rewatch scorecard. It could have been 4-3 Oscar, but from there— Oscar's age started to show more. He was getting more flat footed, started getting popped more without punching back much. And it was pretty much classic Floyd, uh, not pushing for the knockout, but doing enough to win the rounds. And then, of course, he stood and traded for a thrilling final 10 seconds of the fight when it <laughs> didn't really matter anymore. Um, so, yeah, it may not have been the greatest or most action packed fight of all time, but it had its moments. Uh, let's talk about the best round. What What do you think was
1: the best round of the fight? So I think um like no round super elevated itself of course um uh but I think maybe round 5 um I thought the previous four rounds each had a clear winner um and in three of those then and now I thought that that winner was Floyd uh, I gave Oscar the second um but this was the first round in my in mind that was perhaps legitimately close um there were some solid exchanges this is the first time that De La Hoya really showed I thought a w- real willingness a- an awareness that what he needed to do was use that jab and start trying to you know throw the right hand behind it and start putting some hurt on Floyd um and it was the first time he really stepped that up and realized that he had to do that uh but Floyd also showed uh as he off- as he did at times a particularly lower than 147, an ability to just stand there in the pocket happy to just try and dodge or absorb some punches and then fire back with those strong single punches encounter in, in um really especially those crisp overhand rights there was a brief moment i thought had i not known better watching that again on round five i might have on uh, on tv or, or rather online to, to prepare for this i might have thought oh this fight might be about to get interesting right. um that was the brief moment, apart from, as you said, that end of round 12 where I thought that. What about yourself? Uh, even in a pandemic, Raskin
2: and Mulvaney going to Raskin and Mulvaney. Oh, no way, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I picked the same round, although maybe for slightly different reasons, or at least it didn't seem to me as competitive a round as it seemed to you. Uh, to me, it was a clear Mayweather round. Um but it, it had some some drama and some good action. Oscar was pushing the fight early in the round, flurrying ineffectively, but getting a rise out of the crowd while Floyd was landing some of his best single shots of the yep. fight. Um, but the, the reason I think it was an easy round to score was there was a moment along the ropes when Oscar was attacking and Mayweather landed a beautiful right-hand counter, and it was almost imperceptible, but Oscar's knees seemed to dip just a bit. Um, And then in the late part of the round, Floyd was actually coming forward, stepping to Oscar, something he did not do much in this fight, uh, but he would later famously do it to regain control after Shane Mosley hurt him in the second round of their fight. So it wasn't a great round, but it was a very good round. You know, this fight didn't have any great rounds. So we are on the same page about what the best round was
1: yeah yeah indeed um i i think we're bound to be on the same page here um in that you know some fights feel that they have a very distinct turning point uh where things change very much in the direction of of one fighter or the other I, i think this was one of them i assume you agree and where do you think that turning point came? So
2: I'll be curious to see if we have the exact... I'm sure we're in the ballpark of each other yeah. on this, but exactly where that line of demarcation is uh, in this fight. Um, you know, for for me, the, the fight went in a different direction. After the first seven rounds, which were close yep. and competitive, and then and then you had the last five that were mostly controlled by Floyd, um, the seventh in which Oscar jabbed very well was kind of his last stand, even if we didn't realize it in the moment. Um, you, you know how after the fight he gave that wishy-washy answer? For some reason, it wasn't the night of the jab. Uh, He later admitted uh, a couple of years later after he'd retired, he admitted that his body was breaking down. His shoulder started bothering him. His body Mm. just stopped cooperating and age slowed him down, along with Floyd's skills slowing him down, of course. But so I guess I'll say the turning point for me was round eight, a round in which. I think the HBO commentators blew it. They, they were missing everything Floyd was doing, although Harold Letterman knew what was up and correctly scored the round for Floyd, a round in which CompuBox saw him landing 20 of 35 punches. Oscar was landing some good jabs early in the round, but then Floyd picked him off with a counter right, started landing some nice one twos, some clean lead right hands. And to me, that was the pivotal round in which Oscar started slowing down. And Floyd started to pull away. All right, do you have the, the same? Are you saying round eight also, or are you shading
1: it slightly differently? Oh, it's so funny that you say that because I do say round eight, but I also do shade it because I, in my notes I'm like, you could make the case that the turning point happened in the course of round seven, hmm. because Oscar had a really good first half, two thirds of that round, and it was at some point during that round where he just started to holster the jab. And round eight felt like the first full round where it was gone and it was done. Mm. Um But thereabouts, it is absolutely in that spot, Um either partway through round seven or in round eight. Um, that's what happened, that jab. And it was it was interesting listening because obviously, you know, I, like I said, I was ringside and I'm not sure how many times, if many times at all, or indeed at all, that I've watched it with the commentary. So there are a couple of things that I found really interesting watching it. Larry, early on, really registering his displeasure for the (laughs) Floyd Mayweather fight. Yeah. And the constant back and forth. He never gave Floyd a fair shake. He
2: never did. (laughs) <laughs> he never did.
1: Yeah. Um, he just does not like that kind of fighting. Um and and just that constant like speculation um between Emmanuel and, and Larry trying to like shut it down about whether it, there was going to come a point at which Oscar was gonna stop throwing that jab and was gonna get tired. Yeah. And it was almost like they were foreshadowing the whole thing. And right. yep, there there it is. That that's exactly what happened. And I do think, you know, part of it was it was interesting to hear what you were saying about. Oscar saying his body breaking down and his shoulder hurting and all of that, and you know, like again, as 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 the guys ringside were talking about a lot, and as you could see very clearly, there was that tension that he was holding in his body as well. Yes. But I also think, and you you alluded like in that fifth round to that really short, sharp, beautiful right hand that Floyd landed. I think he did another in in the fifth. He did another one in the seventh, I think, over the top of Oscar's jab. And I think even though at, at forty seven and above he obviously didn't have like real knockout power. I think a little bit like Bernard Hopkins in, in his later career that not a lot of knockout power, but enough on the punches to deter yeah. his opponents. And and I think that part of that was an element there as well. You had that speed as well of just enough sharpness to like, and when you've got a guy like Oscar who's already thinking probably too much in the ring there, I think that that was probably adding to it as well. Once you start thinking too much against Floyd Mayweather, you are uh, doomed. Yes.
2: Um, yeah, no, that that's a, gr- a great observation that he, he hit just hard enough to keep you honest and to, to, as a fight wore on, in in Oscar's case, slow you down, if not shut you down, but slow you down enough to do what he wanted to do. Um, so looking back on it, Kieran, and, and, and re-watching it 13 years after the fact, Did anything about the fight strike you as being better than you remembered?
1: This might sound like a bit of an odd observation, particularly given what we've said about it so far. But honestly, the thing that was a bit better than I remembered was the fight as a whole. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying it was a great fight. Um, but my recollection is that at the time, my feeling at the time, especially after everything had been filed and and you're able to sort of you know sit back and reflect on the evening, was that at the time I seem to recall feeling quite underwhelmed by it and underwhelmed while it was happening. Um, part of what I was doing on that night was doing a live blog for ESPN, hmm. and I have this recollection that after round one, I wrote something like "Oscar's going to be in big trouble unless he finds something here," and. And although he did find something in that first half of that fight in a couple of rounds, it never on that night felt for me for one minute that he was going to win it. And I was absolutely shocked at the scorecards. I was shocked even when it was 116-112 for Mayweather. As I said, I had it 117-111 on the night. It just didn't feel like a good fight. And, and I don't want to oversell like my road to Damascus conversion or anything or to make it sound like in hindsight it's actually Hagler Hearns or that it ever felt competitive. But I don't think I fully appreciated before that, at least through, like we said, through eight, let's say, through seven, certainly. This was actually a pretty high-quality prize fight between two Hall of Famers trying to impose their very different styles on each other. Um, And and I don't know that I fully appreciated and enjoyed that at the time. Of course, it's kind of difficult sometimes to appreciate and enjoy a, a fight when you're constantly having to, like, blog every single thing that's happening while answering, you know, readers' <laughs> questions. Right. Like, I, hated, I hated doing those ESPN live blog. I can say it now. I hated <laughs> that gig. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I, I don't know that there's any one thing that, that struck me as better, but just that I probably gave it a little bit short shrift before. That it's okay to say it wasn't a great fight, but to acknowledge that it was a skillful one. What about mm-hmm. yourself? So th- there were a few things I'd forgotten, and these
2: aren't necessarily Better than I remembered. More just a case of me not remembering. But I'll, I'll run down a few things here. First, how effective Floyd's lean back defensive move was mm-hmm. in preventing Oscar from landing anything hard, uh, and and from really never at all landing his left hook well. Um, second. I think this might've been the first time Floyd used the phrase easy work. Uh, one of you Floyd historians out there, correct me on that if I, if I'm wrong, but after the fight, he called it easy work. And that might've been the first time. Uh, number three, I totally forgot that Floyd claimed he was retiring afterward. Uh, the first of many times he said it and we knew better than to believe it. Uh, I don't think he meant it in this case. I think he wanted for his ego to hear back from people that they wanted him to keep fighting. But I do believe he was a guy who was thinking about retirement constantly since early in his career. Um, And number four, what I guess I'd say is the top thing in terms of being better than I remembered, the interview with Floyd Sr. afterward, where he remarkably says, Oscar probably should have gotten the decision. Uh, was he angling to return to Oscar's <laughs> corner for a big paycheck? I don't know. But he kind of amazingly fanned the flames of controversy where one really shouldn't have existed, uh, right. except, except over
1: Casmaric's scorecard. Uh, that, that should have been the only controversy. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, the whole, like, Floyd retiring thing. So my— I, it's all sort of fuzzily sort of coming back now where he insisted that he was about to put his feet up and then ricky hatton kept calling him out right and so he's like fine i'll come out of <laughs> quote-unquote retirement to beat ricky and that was then that he went into the wrestlemania phase of his life i think wasn't it sounds After right Rick yeah hatton i think and so so on and so forth but yeah no i've forgotten that i remember him saying that at the press conference too and there was the whole question of are you nobody believed him and the only question was does he believe it right. or not? And that, that was a hard take. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's our take on, on the classic. And I mean, classic in the sense of not necessarily what unfolded in the ring, but what it meant in terms of an event. Um, mm-hmm. What about some of those who are more intimately involved? If we turn to a couple of folks to get their recollections. And we begin with Ross Greenberg. Uh, Ross is now the president of Ross Greenberg Productions. He produces plenty of content for Showtime, including All Access. But at the time, he was president of HBO Sports and one of the driving forces behind that very first 24-7. So we asked him how 24-7 De La Hoya Mayweather came to be.
0: Well, to be honest, about seven years earlier in 2000, we had debuted Hard Knocks, which was the first All Access show of its kind in sports. And the way that came about was, you know, we wanted to go into a training camp of a football team. So an NFL team. So we got into the Baltimore Ravens preseason and we did our five week series. So years later in like 2005 or so, um, we've had the idea to do an all access show prior to a fight. And we were waiting for the opportunity and Chris Albrecht, who was the CEO at the time, I had recommended that we started off with a promotion with Gotti. And I think it was De La Jolla. Hmm. And he said, you know, that's not really a, as big a fight as we need to debut this series. So why don't we wait? And so we waited, it must've been six months later or whatever. And there materialized, De La Hoya versus Mayweather. And we knew we had a lightning in the bottle with Mayweather. We didn't know that he was, you know, as bizarre and as um, different as he ended up to be. But we knew that we had, you know, a a superstar in Oscar and we had an interesting character in Mayweather who had just come off of his promotion deal with Bob Arum and was kind of like, lightning in a bottle because he was all pent up and he wanted to express himself and create his own image. And we gave him the ability to do that with 24-7 Hoya Mayweather. Um, We knew it would be a nice shot in the arm for the promotion, but it became a classic in terms of its television premiere and it lit the entire country up. Uh, and really went after every demographic. You know, I had, uh, kids in college at the time, my twins were in college. And when I started to hear that my son's friends were all huddled around, you know, the weekly, uh, debut of the show, I said, you know what, this is hitting a different audience and this is going to be a huge promotion. And, we can thank this series for that.
2: Right. Yeah, it, it really crossed over in this amazing way that we hadn't quite seen before. Um, and, and as you were saying, you kind of got lightning in a bottle with, with Mayweather. He He's part of what turned out to be really kind of a a perfect cast of characters here. You had his whole plan and the tension between them. You had Freddie Roach. You had Oscar and his own complicated issues with his dad. Um, When you started getting the footage in, were you just looking at the footage and immediately thinking, oh, my God, we've struck gold here?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as we got the first daily... We knew we had struck gold. Particularly with Mayweather. Because, you know, when he started throwing money at the camera and <laughs> he started doing his craziness at home with with those uh crazy whatever they're called. You know, those things where you go around the, the, se- the segways
2: that they were writing yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Segways, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: When he started using the segway and in the follow up show we had Oscar imitating him. Yeah, I knew we were on to something big. And uh and also giving people the insight of what it's like to train and prepare for a huge fight like that. And the back and forth between the two, they didn't really genuinely like each other. Right. Um, and, and it was clear that Mayweather wanted to get under Oscar's skin and he was succeeding. Uh, and if you remember also, not many people gave Mayweather much of a chance. Everyone thought he was too small for Dale Ahoy and that Dale Ahoy would blow him out of the ring. And so the entire ramp up of four weeks really got people totally obsessed with the fight and Mm -hmm. they, you know, I'll never, you know, you always talk about your first being your love and tell you of all the series we did since, including all the ones I did with Showtime, you know, there's never been anything like that. Um, and there never will be because, you know, when you do it for the first time, it's just so fresh and new that it really captures the American public's imagination. Yeah.
1: You know, it's it's almost easy to forget, you know, 13 years or so later, just how immense the hype was for this, because we've had other mega fights since, oh. of course, and, and everybody just focuses on that. But I mean obviously we all remember that sports illustrated cover when they called it the fight to save mm-hmm. boxing and and as a mm-hmm. boxing person did you find yourself like conflicted like as a boxing person wanting to say well that's ridiculous we did boxing doesn't need one fight to save it or but as a marketing yeah, guy it, were you also too. thinking oh come on man bring it on this is great this is going to get people to buy the fight
0: yeah i mean at that point in time it was 2007 and you know, La Hoy was still a superstar. You had quite a few stars out there. You had a good, healthy heavyweight division. Um, so, I mean, I, I really took exception to that cover. Uh, boxing was not in its heyday. I had lived through the eighties and nineties and, you know, the early two thousands. Uh, and I won't, I won't kid you that, you know, boxing was in its glory years, but it certainly wasn't the fight to save boxing. I, I would say that it kept boxing very much alive in the public's imagination, and it really attracted the non-boxing fan to the fight. Um, and really, as I look back on my forty years in in boxing and in television, you know, I always said that it was the the basic sports fan coming to the arena uh, and watching the fight that really created the big events, whether it was Leonard Hagler or Leonard Hearns or whatnot, they wouldn't necessarily watch every fight that was on every week. But when those big Ali fights came around or the big Leonard Duran or Leonard Hearns or Leonard Haglers came around or the Tyson fights, you know, in the late eighties and nineties, they were there and Holyfield and, and all of the rest. So, you know, that's what this fight reminded me of. It was as big an event as, you know, I was ever a part of. And I'll never forget that night sitting ringside, uh, you know, as the anticipation had built through this series and and we were there live. Um, mm. Obviously, the fight itself, did it live up to the hype? Probably not. I don't know, you know, De Hoya just kind of, I don't know what was going through his mind halfway through yeah. the fight, but, you know, it just didn't work, whatever he was trying to do. Um, and his heart didn't seem like he was in it.
2: Mm. right and he kind of said afterwards that he felt himself getting old uh kind of midway through the fight his body not responding the way he wanted it to so yeah maybe it kind of everything caught up with him in in the middle of that fight
0: basically and we also learned that there was no greater fighter in the ring than Floyd Mayweather which no one had appreciated until that night I mean that was the coming out party for him as a fighter as much as our 24 seven series was a coming out party for him outside the ring as a character.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and on that front, you know, at the time the fight was made, Oscar was the biggest star in boxing and Floyd was, was not a superstar yet, though he was considered pound for pound the best. but he hadn't quite crossed Mm -hmm. over from star to superstar. So, we all know that this fight went on to set what stood up for many years as, as the Mm -hmm. record for pay-per-view sales. Were you at all surprised as you watched the pay-per-view tracking numbers come in at, at, at the sheer success of the event, or was this kind of what you were anticipating by the time it was fight night?
0: Yeah. By the time it was fight night, because of the series, frankly, I knew that we were going to set huge records because we had, caught the public's eye and we had infiltrated everyone's home with the series. And there was a huge anticipation to see the fight. And uh, once I knew that people were gathering at everyone's house around the country uh, to watch the fight, because it was also at the height of pay per view television, I knew we were going to set records. I didn't know we would get up to two and a half million, but I, I knew we were going to set huge records for pay-per-view. And, uh, and and I really credit 24-7 with that for yeah. lighting the fire. I, the fight would have done well, but it wouldn't have done that well.
2: Okay, our thanks to Ross Greenberg, one of the executive producers of 24-7. The docuseries introduced boxing fans not just to the boxers, but to the people who were close to them. And one man who featured a lot in that first edition was Leonard Ellerbe, Floyd's longtime friend and now the CEO of Mayweather Promotions. He shed some insight for us on what that promotion was like and whether what we saw on this reality show was in fact reality. Leonard, the 24-7 for the Oscar fight was the first time most of us had been exposed to the Money May persona. Uh, During the show, Floyd said there couldn't be two good guys in the promotion, so he'd happily be the bad guy. How much of the public side of Floyd during this promotion was an act, and and how much was his natural personality, if a bit exaggerated?
3: It was definitely his natural personality (laughs) as it relates to the the buildup because uh, him and Oscar haven't haven't liked each other. They, they never liked
0: each other.
2: So, uh, but in terms of the way that he presented himself, was it was it kind of carefully thought out and planned that he wanted to play that bad guy role, or, uh, or or was there not like planning that went into it?
3: Oh, there was no definitely no planning. Everything for we that's one thing we don't do in boxing. We don't act and we don't play. And Floyd's very big on that. Uh, if it's not spontaneous and it's not real, um, he, he wants no parts of it. So, okay. you know, what you saw is what, exactly how he felt. At every, at every turn, he did everything humanly possible he could to get under Oscar's skin because he knew <laughs> once, once that happened, he was a beat fighter. Right, right. And the rest, he just had to dress up when he went into the ring on, the, on that particular night and get the job done. Right.
1: So, you know, talking about, you know, like, not like an Oscar, uh, Kevin Ioli told me a story a while back of like, he, he went backstage to talk to Floyd after Floyd, had, I think went to six and zero. he was on the Oscar and Purnell Whitaker undercard, right? And, and, and Kevin goes to this, this kid, you know, super talented, but he's only six and zero. and Kevin goes, so Floyd, who do you want to fight next? And he said, Oscar. <laughs> and he was like seemingly really serious about it. And, and obviously part of that was the natural self-confidence. We, we all know how self-confident Floyd was, but it seemed like he was laser focused on fighting Oscar for years before he actually did. Is that true? And what was behind that? If it is true.
3: Very true. Early on, early on in his career, I can remember him always telling me that him and Oscar Hoya was going to fight. And I didn't believe him. I, I always, we always <laughs> used to joke about that. I was like, Y'all are not gonna fight. He is not gonna fight you. He's never gonna give you the opportunity. And, and then when it, when we finally made the fight, you know, um, Floyd was extremely excited because again he knew he only he always wanted to get him in the ring mm. because he knew he was a better fighter than he was. He always knew that. Always knew that.
0: Mm.
2: Would you say, Leonard, that that Floyd needed this fight against this opponent to? become as big as he became? I mean, you just said how badly he wanted it, but in terms of how how, how vital was was beating Oscar to all the future riches that, that Floyd enjoyed?
3: It was the key to everything. It was the key mm-hmm. to everything. Oscar, he was the golden boy. He's the one that had the platform. He was the guy. He, he was the guy that all the fans were talking about, you know, his skills, and, and he was the top dog. Got to give credit where credit is due. He was the talk dog, and he was calling all of the shots. So we had to come in on the B side, take less money, um, all his demands. We had to accept all his demands, and and we we capitalized on that because, again, I can't say it enough. Floyd knew that once we got him into the ring, it was a wreck.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: right, and so and and so yeah, on on that front,
2: I mean. The fight itself wasn't like a thriller, uh, largely because Floyd was able to dictate for much of it and fight his type of fight and win enough rounds to really kind of limit the drama. Did, did the fight itself unfold pretty much how you all expected, or, or were there any moments of concern that it wasn't going the way you hoped?
3: Actually, I have to disagree with you on that. It, it, it wasn't a barn burner, but it was a very, very good fight, um, and it was very entertaining. Um, I actually just recently, ESPN replayed it, and that actually was the first time I had actually sat down and listened to the call and actually, you know, took my time and actually watched the fight round by round. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a very good, entertaining fight. There was a narrative that was out there where certain media members were pushing, and, and you know, a lot of the media piggybacked on it. But, you know, the fight played out exactly how uh, Floyd um, Floyd's game plan was. the fight was very easy to him it
1: was very Mm. easy all right thanks very much to leonard for those insights um that was great between him and ross um but you know what before we move on let's let's put our feet up a little bit and let's uh let's hang out let's chop it up with someone else who like us was an interested observer although as it turns out a little bit from a distance (laughs) um let's let's talk now to our very good friend the one and only mr brian campbell so BC, this was the first super fight of, of the modern era to have like such an extensive buildup. Uh, it had, you know, 24 seven obviously was at the heart of it. So as much as you can remember by the time fight week came around and fight night, how hyped were you? And what were your expect- expectations going into this fight?
4: CBS Sunday, after the equalizer.
3: You collect rewards,
0: right?
4: This
2: is how I make my living.
4: It's the season finale. Everyone's looking for something. Of Tracker,
0: you strong swimmer. So 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 so's okay.
4: Justin Hartley stars.
2: How you survive? You make quick, smart decisions. If you never let panic
0: take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool.
4: Tracker.
2: CBS season finale Sunday after the Equalizer on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus.
4: I mean, through the roof. I was hyped, and you nailed the part that it was different from the earlier super fights. I guess Lewis Tyson was the last one before this to ever feel on this level. Uh that it had such a crossover build with that damn 24-7 show that when you look, the, the measuring stick is always if your mom knows about these guys, right. the fight has gotten there. And this was a your mom fight. Yeah, I'm talking about your mom. This was a <laughs> your mom fight where where the, the it was such, you know, good versus evil, hero versus villain, in terms of the roles they played on that. For me personally, I was an Oscar super fan yet one who knew his flaws as a fighter especially in that second half as well as anybody so i remember being so excited when it was booked he can win this this is at 154 this will be the, the the you know top of the mountain in the second half of his career and then as things got closer as you're watching 24/7 as you see oscar's face you're like he might get hurt in this fight he might get stopped yeah. in this fight this is going to be something simultaneously though i uh, may 5th 2007 my wedding night. So that, ah. really, that fight. Oh, that's right. But, I
2: forgot. I uh, feel like I've heard this story before, but I forgot yeah. that detail. Go on. Yeah.
4: Longer story, but I was I was a no-name uh, jobber at ESPN and uh, begging my boss to get sent to a fight, and he said to me one day in 2005, uh, or know, six, if they ever make this De La Hoya Mayweather fight, that <laughs> whisper it. You can go to that fight. We'll send you to cover it. So at that point, I don't know I'm going to become a boxing writer. I think that might be my only time getting to go to a fight. And I proposed to my wife. And she said, yeah, let's get married on the one-year anniversary of our first date. Remember Cinco de Mayo? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. No idea what I'm saying. The next day, fellas, they booked Uh. that fight. So I lost the chance to go. But, yes, the build was fever pitch. I mean, it really comes down to the 24-7 because it really exposed the hero versus villain personalities, and Floyd was just so brilliant back then in playing that role. But uh, as much as I was concerned for Oscar, I remember there being a feel that you really didn't know who was going to win, and that and that obviously is a part of what makes the Super Fight special. Right.
2: So So... Going a, a little deeper on that, uh, that, that mom factor, that crossover uh, question, um, trying to put it in like perspective or even kind of rank it, uh, wh- where do you rate this fight in terms of those that have crossed over into the mainstream? Maybe not all time, but let's say over the last 25 years or so, like going back to the Holyfield-Tyson fights through today, is this a top five biggest event, top three? Is it number one? What do you think?
4: I think it's a top three on crossing over and that's because one, you had Oscar who people fall in love with for, you know, going back to the 92 Olympics for a reason, there's a welcoming factor on Oscar, uh, the fish that's just fit So, per- well, sorry. We'll edit that out. <laughs> um, it's, and then you mix that again with Mayweather as such an obvious bad guy and heel that you can root against that. I think it's about top three. Look, Mayweather Pacquiao had the bigger build because people had heard about it for so many years. Mayweather McGregor combined different audiences in such a weird way, had the white versus black thing, had the sport versus sport thing. Maybe those two were bigger. Certainly Holyfield, Tyson uh, two especially, was in another sort of stratosphere. The first one was a little muted because we thought Holyfield was done. But uh, this is right there in that conversation that that, for, for being on HBO and not national, you know, network television. The reach of that 24/7 program always surprised me how far it was able to go. And yeah, it's right there. I mean, it's right there. And it was two guys in their prime too, which is important. And uh, heavyweights always sold themselves. Maybe De La Hoya uh, Trinidad was that first non-heavyweight one that really got people. I think this almost doubled on that in terms of, of grabbing people because it's so personality driven and you had it in this, you really had it aging superstar guy who might be next. You had all those elements
1: interesting that you said you know maybe they were both in their prime <clears throat> do you think there's a case to be made but you also as you pointed out oscar was also the aging superstar do you think had oscar had this happened at a time if magically oscar could have been a bit younger um do you think the situation could have been a bit different if oscar was perhaps a bit closer to his peak floyd where he was in that fight do you think we might have seen a slightly different fight could Oscar have won that fight
4: 100 percent. now I, I sort of contrasted myself there what i meant by in their prime was was you know, Oscar on the tail end, but certainly had it was in a shot, could have won in the built in weight advantage of 154 pounds, gave him that extra uh, level of where it could have happened, still had enough hand speed yet at the same time, like I mentioned, aging hero still, uh, you know, on the verge of entering his twilight there. Yes. Prime Oscar with the hand speed, the boxing ability and that left hook would have been the type of kryptonite where, you know, you ask Oscar, he says, I would have knocked Floyd out. I you know I wouldn't go that far, but certainly one of those fifty-fifty legit 50-50 fights where you're like hey, this maybe this goes to the scorecard as a split decision, which this fight ultimately did. Yeah, one of those more like Mosley De La Hoya one type fights. You know it, that might be the best example, even though Floyd a different fighter, of course, than Shane. But uh, yeah, absolutely, I think De La Hoya at his core always had what would have. Given Mayweather problems and I do have to give De La Hoya a ton of credit. Like I mentioned, I was up and down knowing him so well coming in. By the time the fight night happened, I was worried for him. And as you guys remember, those first six rounds, at least you were like, oh, oh, he's in this. Oh, he might be winning this. Oh, he's got a game plan that actually works. Oh, that jab is the perfect go to the body. Yes, Oscar. So it it was a fun little bit of theater for a while until that gas tank uh, ran out. Yeah, but it, you're but it, it, a lot
1: of attention to that fight on your wedding night. Is all I can say. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I did not watch it live. Did, I knew, I knew did, just, I did you stay? Have...
1: Did you stay spoiler
2: free though? By the time you watched it, did, had, did you know the result, or you you were able to watch it after the fact, uh, not knowing what had happened?
4: I had told my best men, my two best men. I, I like men, you know, had two best <laughs> best men, um, to text <laughs> me the result so that the next morning I could wake up in the hotel room before going to the airport uh, for the honeymoon. Neither did, but I had a flip phone, and I remember going on that like real barebones ESPN.com, uh, and I was able to see that Mayweather lost, I'm sorry, that De La Hoya lost a split decision, and right away I was like, oh my God, he had a chance to win it. He was better than I thought he was. He still had, you know, I was I was very excited. Um, I didn't get to watch it, oddly enough, because mm-hmm. this was, uh, you remember, I mean, this was virgin YouTube territory where the fights weren't just on there automatically. I remember I had to mail away for it. I missed the replay, uh, the you know, the pay-per-view replay on HBO. Oh, because you had... were
2: on your honeymoon at the time of the replay, I guess?
4: Uh, yes, and okay. I had to purchase it uh, from a vendor. Back then, I spent <laughs> wow. a year buying DVDs of fights, uh, and then YouTube, you know, became what it was a year and a half later, and that was a, wasted, a lot of wasted money. <laughs> <laughs> All right,
2: well, last thing, BC, I need... 30 seconds of Brian Campbell analysis of what was going on with Floyd senior's hair in 2007. Is it, Uh, is it ever okay to grow your hair out when you're going bald on top? What's your, what's your take on that?
4: uh, Can we ask Jerry Rice of the Raiders era? That same question. He was the only (laughs) man ever to pull off the receding hairline and the cornrows at the same time. What Floyd senior did was very much more of like, the predator look—that's yes. from the '85 <laughs> okay. uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger thriller—and that might be an insult to him, but it was oddly close. I don't know how he pulled that off, what he did, but that's friggin' iconic. And I hope when he does pass one day, that that will be one of the things that that's most highly remembered. Uh, you know, is it even possible to to pull this haircut off? Is it? it can you grow, uh, you know, dreads that thick? Put them, part them, cornrow them, but also be having like a half of a shaved head on the top of your head. That that's a very interesting uh, chemistry equation there. But, right. Uh, yeah.
2: He he and Lennox Lewis clearly had different philosophies on this because Lennox, yeah. once it started to get real thin, he just got rid of it all. But Floyd Senior really really stuck it out. He was trying to be kind of the the Hulk Hogan of boxing, I guess.
1: Yes ah uh, uh, yes you kids your <laughs> pro wrestling references <laughs> um yes that was a lot of fun uh, really enjoyed doing that thanks again to ross greenberg to leonard ellaby and to our buddy brian campbell uh stay tuned to the end of this podcast to find out which fight we will be revisiting next week all right pause deep breath you have been warned um <laughs> We do have a surprising amount of news to discuss, given that the sport is basically on a global hiatus. Um, Well, for now, anyway. um, One country seems determined to stage life boxing as soon as possible, uh, and that is Japan. So early last week, there were reports that The annual Japanese Rookie of the Year tournament was set to begin on April 5th, live-streamed but uh, held behind closed doors. Almost immediately, however, it was postponed. Um, Then professional boxing was slated to return to the country with a card headlined by a Japanese middleweight title bout. And now that's been postponed. The next card on the docket is scheduled for May 19th, headlined by lightweight contender Hiroki Okada. Uh, Eric... This is something of a fool's errand at this point, trying to make these kind of predictions. Who the hell knows? Uh, But you're the odds guy. (laughs) So uh, what uh, what are the odds that you're offering on Japanese professional boxing resuming in Uh, mid-May?
2: There's a pattern developing here, and it's set a date, push it back and set a new date. Uh, And I was just reading that Tokyo is trending toward becoming the next New York City. Uh, You know, if Japan was a country that really had it under control, I might be more optimistic, but hardly anybody has it under control. So mid-May seems almost impossible. Uh, Even in the U.S., where uh, the denial from the federal government has been off the charts from day one and remains so, Trump is apparently encouraging the major sports to start in July, uh, as if him wanting it to happen means (laughs) anything. uh, But but his hope is now July. So with that in mind, I think everyone should recalibrate their expectations and probably rule out anything before July. At this point, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment if you think we're anywhere near the end of this situation sorry to be that guy but uh when the people in charge negligently botched crisis management to the absolute maximum well here we are uh so something around july 1st seems to be the consensus over under for resuming some sort of sports without crowds and i don't think japan is really going to be much of an exception on that front yeah uh, meanwhile the virus is starting to take a bite out of parts of the boxing media as one would expect. You and I are very lucky. We podcast for a network that has much more than just sports. According to Keith Eidek at Boxing Scene, citing a report from Sports Business Daily, DAZN sent a mass email to employees last Tuesday to inform them that an unspecified number of them will be furloughed on an undetermined date. Those most impacted will be those that work in departments with little to no workload until live streaming resumes. Meanwhile, DAZN executive John Skipper has tested positive for the virus, but has fully recovered and has returned back to work. Obviously, that's good news for Skipper. Uh, Kieran, is the D'Zone news ominous for the boxing and sporting media landscape?
1: I'm sure the folks at The Zone are mighty relieved that they switched to giving subscribers that annual option so that not everybody is on a monthly subscription because <laughs> Yeah,
2: I'm I'm not oh, relieved because I paid for that, but yeah. <laughs> so
1: as did as did I, as <laughs> yeah. did I, but if they were just doing the monthly thing still, that would be highly problematic yes. you have to figure. I mean, I have absolutely no idea how many subscribers they have or what percentage is on the annual plan and how many are monthly. Um it will be interesting to see how this you know ultimately impacts you sort of alluded to this already yourself what had until just a month or so ago seemed an inevitable change in the way that people consume sports and D T V more generally the trend was seemingly inexorably moving toward um ott providers such as the zone and espn plus and and some tie-in with you know sports networks uh, you know bob arum having sort of gloated over the demise of hbo boxing um predicted that showtime would rapidly follow suit he said look the Future is one of sports programming belonging entirely on sports-only apps and networks. Um, you know, and, and and you know to follow up on what you just said, what none of this had taken into consideration was the prospect of live sport being halted. Right. And suddenly, it's precisely those outlets that offer sports as part of their broader programming, and in terms of boxing, that's Showtime and Fox, um, which seem best suited to survive this, and possibly, I mean, one hesitates to use the word thrive in these conditions, but those who are home and who can afford it and who are not in immediate danger of losing their job and I recognize that's just a small and possibly ever smaller subset of those who are involved and everybody who's facing this crisis. They are more likely to be staying at home and watching Fox or keeping their premium cable than they are to obviously sign up to or retain a live sports streaming app that has a, what, please stay tuned thing on it. Um, So I don't know. Uh, hopefully, uh, 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 to follow up on the Japan thing, hopefully we will pass this peak in the not-too-distant future, and there'll be live sport before too long, and DAZN will be fine, and our friends who work for DAZN will be fine. Um, and, yeah, okay, In the same way that our freezer concerns are very, you know, first of all, problems. How things shake out for the sports over the top streaming industry is a small component of of how this thing is going to affect us all. But that's the business that we are in, the sports broadcasting. And it will be interesting to see how or if this shakes up our business, if it does stretch on very much longer. Right. Um, One more COVID impact on the sport. And well, I hates to like be overly like excited about any kind of impacts of the coronavirus, but in the long run, this could work out remarkably well. Um, the international boxing hall of fame announced that it will be cancelling this year's induction festivities. Um, and that's obviously got to suck for kind of Stoda because you and I have both been there. We know how important it is to the, to the town to have that weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was really no alternative, but here's where it may rebound in a positive way. Um, the hall is going to combine the 2020 and 21, 2021 classes and one big, nay, huge event next year. Um, this year's class, of course, included Bernard Hopkins, Juan Manuel Marquez, Shane Mosley, Christy Martin, and Lucia Riker. And that means that next year's combo ceremony, and we are assuming that it's going to take place and that right. we're not all eating each other and stealing each other's refrigerators <laughs> by then, <Right. laughs> because this year's eligible fighters include... Miguel Cotto, Vladimir Klitschko, Andre Ward, and some guy called Floyd Mayweather Jr. And you have to figure that Leila Ali will be inducted um, this time, surely on the women's side. Lord have mercy, Eric. How much are you looking forward to this prospect? And do you think we can convince Brian Daly to book our our travel now?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Uh, We may as well now reveal to the audience that we had big plans for this year's Hall of Fame weekend. We were working on arranging to spend the whole weekend there, doing tons of interviews for the podcast. And so – Yes, 2021 is going to be the Hall of Fame celebration to end all celebrations. Ed Brophy and his team, I think, very clearly made the right call here. You'd hate to postpone it to the fall and then maybe have to postpone it again. And, you know, this isn't like Wimbledon where you cancel it and that's it. You're not playing two Wimbledons in 2021. In this case, you can cancel 2020, but just make 2021 twice as big. That's the way to do it. And... You know, it's a long way off, unfortunately, but we need things to look forward to, and 2021 Hall of Fame weekend is definitely one of them. All right, well, uh, it seems it has fallen upon me to go through this week's list of random boxing news items, and as seems appropriate in the current age, they are uniformly awful. Here we go. Trainer Bob Jackson, a New York boxing fixture and one of the pillars of Gleason's gym, died last week at the age of 82 as did 74-year-old Hegemon Lewis, welterweight contender of the 1960s and 70s, who three times fell just short of winning the title from the likes of Jose Napolis and John H. Stracy, before himself becoming a West Coast fixture in many boxing corners. Uh, to be clear, neither of those deaths were COVID-19-related, based on reports. Uh, continuing the sad news, Marquise Johnson, the son of Hall of Famer Mark Sharp Johnson, was shot and killed in Washington, D.C. at age 27. The shooting happened early in March, but was only recently reported by Tom Lavero of the Washington Examiner. Johnson, you'll recall, twice lost to Rafael Marquez, whose amazing sequence of fights with Israel Vasquez reaired on Showtime a couple of Saturdays ago. Now Vasquez has revealed that he is suffering from systemic sclerosis, a rare chronic autoimmune rheumatic disorder that causes degenerative changes to internal organs as well as the skin. The condition has now corroded the former 122-pound boxing champion Vasquez's body to 112 pounds. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's a lot to take in. Uh, Anything to say or add, Kieran?
1: It says something, doesn't it, when perhaps the most uplifting of those news items is the fact that Israel Vasquez is 112 pounds and alive. Right. Um, so yeah, we wish him all the very best um, with uh, with 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 dealing with that and and recovering from it, if that is possible. I'm not sure that it is, but um, and also just to add to it, because that just wasn't miserable enough. Um, A special mention for poor Anthony Yard. Um, We last week reported he'd lost his father suddenly to the virus. And now a week later, he's lost his grandmother to the virus. I can barely imagine what his family is going through there. Um, uh, And the fun continues. Um, One greatly concerning consequence of the quarantine and stay at home orders across much of the nation and around the world is the risk of an increase in domestic violence um, as victims are essentially trapped with their abusers and those abusers with little else to distract them turn their predatory focus with extra intensity on their victims it is the kind of issue that obviously should concern any mildly compassionate or halfway human individual and then there's billy joe saunders um Saunders posted a video of him hitting a heavy bag in which he was giving frankly detailed and step-by-step instructions on how to punch a woman who was annoying you during the lockdown um an utterly reprehensible action that has led to his license being suspended by the British Boxing Board of Control pending a hearing look it's hardly the first time Saunders has put his delightful personality on display for the world um He was fined by the BBB of C in 2018 after he posted a video in which he was shown offering an apparent homeless woman crack cocaine if she hit a parser-by on the street. Um, Earlier this year – well, indeed, it feels like years ago, but it's just (laughs) a few weeks – he prank called an airline uh, claiming that three passengers, a friend of his, boxer Josh Taylor and former Tyson Fury trainer Ben Davison – Uh, might have the virus Um, they were of course kicked off their flight before the flight took off and grilled Um, and a recording then emerged of Saunders laughing heartily at the jape although in his subsequent non-apology apology apology, he insisted that he really was worried that his friend might have the virus because he was coughing that morning and he was trying to perform a public service or something Mm -hmm. um Eric I may just be a small town country podcaster but um it seems to me it is extremely easy to not post videos on how to knock out women with your fists, no matter who you are. Um, is this the kind of idiocy we can expect more of as boxers find themselves increasingly at loose ends um, and in isolation? Or is Billy Joe Saunders... It's merely a special kind of moron.
2: <laughs> uh, moron is too weak. Sounds to me you're like right. he's a special kind of asshole. Um, yeah, you're right. But that's not to say he'll be the only boxer to act out. Look, most boxers are nice people and yep. can be counted on to not be overly stupid, but there are surely a few bad apples, and this isolation situation is definitely testing people. But here's one thing I'll say about Saunders in which I'll take his side, regrettably. I don't think being a moron or an asshole or what have you is a good reason for the BBBFC to suspend your boxing license. He has awful taste and an awful sense of humor, but this particular latest thing he did with the video hitting the heavy bag, it's not a crime, and even if it was, boxers commit crimes and still keep their boxing licenses. Not that it matters. Nobody is boxing right now, and Saunders can still fight in the U.S., of course. I guess I'll sum it up with this. Saunders was looking like a long shot to get his Canelo payday this year due to the virus situation, and this won't help him out on that front, and it all does feel a little bit like karma doing its job as it pertains to him earning a big paycheck this year. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's finish on a somewhat lighter note, shall we? Uh, You mentioned Tiger King at the top of the show and boxing's own original Tiger King. Mike Tyson recently expressed regret over having had a pair of tigers himself 25 or so years ago. I was foolish, he said. There's no way you can domesticate these cats 100%. No way that's going to happen. They'll kill you by accident, especially when you're playing rough with them. You're punching them back. They get hyped up, hit you back, and you're dead, (laughs) end quote. Uh, Kieran, as a wildlife writer, uh, and more importantly, a wildlife writer who has watched Tiger King... (laughs) (laughs) Any thoughts on
1: this? Um, uh, Yeah, he's right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's the thing. Look, as someone who has lived with domestic cats at frequent frequent points throughout my life one conclusion i've always drawn above all others is 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 that all cats no matter how friendly they are are utterly convinced in the back of their mind that at any moment you are going to try and kill them and and (laughs) and that paranoia especially kicks in normally when you're trying to help them because they've got their claw stuck in a blanket Mm -hmm. and you're trying to help them out and they're like this is it this is it this is what they foretold (laughs) And, and they'll try to kill you first and that hurts when the cat weighs 10 pounds and but when it's teeth are six inches long, I imagine it's a whole other world of her. But um, right. <clears throat> but you know, it's funny. You and I have talked about this. But um, him talking about uh, his tigers reminds me. Um, Chris Farina, who for many years shot for Ring Magazine, um, regaled me uh, once with the tale of when he and Nigel Collins went to do a feature on Tyson in Las Vegas when he had those tigers. Yep. And, and Chris was always talking about how. They were in the kitchen, and uh, Tyson had this tiger on a super thick chain in the kitchen. And Chris was trying very much to position himself on the other side of the kitchen table. I <laughs> was starting to take photographs, and and the flash went off. And as he put it, he goes, the flash started freaking out the tiger, and the tiger's going, what's happening? And and Tyson is, like, digging his heels into the smooth, or trying to, into the, the smooth kitchen floor. And the, and the tiger is pulling on the chain, and Tyson's trying to hold it back. And Chris was clearly not in a happy position. Right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, uh, that that ring photo shoot uh, occurred maybe a year or so before I joined the staff. But I I heard some tales of it from Nigel and from our head of marketing, uh, Dave Gerhart, who arranged everything and also was on the trip. Uh, Dave told me uh, when this is actually uh, recently, he retold the story. I saw him not too long ago. He told me about the tiger just reaching its paw out at Tyson and shredding his shoelace nonchalantly. Um, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Nigel told me some stories too, although I think they were mostly about Farina being terrified. Um, (laughs) You couldn't pay me enough to go on that assignment. I don't do dangerous animals. Uh, I have become a dog lover, but uh, tigers, (laughs) no way in hell. Um, I'm glad Tyson has woken up to the error of his ways. Uh, But um, on the plus side, his owning tigers – led to some quality humor in The Hangover. Exactly. So, so at least exactly. there's
1: that. There's, there's one other thing about that trip that Chris told me, and maybe Nigel mentioned this, and i just forgotten it. It's not Tiger-related. That at some point, Mike goes to Nigel, hey, you want to take a ride in my Ferrari? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and and I just like, yeah, sure. And, and I think they only just, like, went to the end of the driveway and back or something. It was a pretty short trip. Uh, you may know more than this. And it was Chris's recollection is that they both get in the car. There's this awful grinding of gears as, as Tyson tries to find the right gear. Just awful, awful noise. And then they like, take off, and then they come right back. And and Farina's like, Mike, there's some kind of weird fluid dripping out of your Ferrari. I think he just screwed up the transmission. And Mike just looks at him and goes, eh, I'll get another one. <laughs> I hadn't actually heard that story. I, I know that Nigel
2: has told me about getting in the car with him, and I know they have the, some pictures of it, too. But I, I don't think I had gotten
1: all those details. That's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, if you wonder why Mike Tyson found himself in financial trouble, <laughs> I'll <laughs> just get another variety. be fine. Um, all right, that will do. I'm glad we ended up with uh, some some good notes there. Uh, yes. That will do it for this bumper edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with a look at another Cinco de Mayo classic, and this one comes from all the way back in 1994. It is the classic Showtime pay per view card: Revenge the Rematches. Look at this lineup. Julio Cesar Chavez, Frankie Randall, Terry Norris, Simon Brown, Gerald McClellan, Julian Jackson, Azuma Nelson, Jesse James Leha. Damn, what a card. Um, no wonder people still talk about it more than 25 years later. And uh, we will be looking back on it with hopefully a special guest. And we hope also to be talking to boxer, term promoter, Dimitri Salida as well. So plenty to look forward to. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.